Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. Big events, wars, depressions, technological transformations, outstandingly good or bad leaders can change how countries work, how citizens relate to governments as well as to each other. Think before and after the overthrow of the Shah, a modernizing monarchy becomes a harsh theocracy. Even short of such a radical scenario, the core of what people get from and give to those who govern them changes over time. Arguably, the more stable the social contract, the more accepted and honored by both the people and their leaders, the more likely citizens will experience peace and prosperity, which, of course, is the whole point of having governments in the first place. My guest today on New Thinking for New World is Swedish historian Lars Tregor. He brings an unusual background to thinking about this whole idea of social contract and the cohesion of societies, having spent his career living and working in the United States as well as in Sweden, where today he's a professor at Uppsala University. Uh, He also published a book last year, which is worth reading, but it's nowhere near as good as the title, The, The Swedish Theory of Love. Fabulous title, however. Uh, Lars can think about America like an American, but also like a European and vice versa. Welcome, Lars, to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let me start with your perceptions of what's going on in the U.S. I know you've been in, in America repeatedly during the past year. But what we got is deep polarization, even deeper distrust of virtually all institutions, people consistently telling pollsters that the country's headed in the wrong direction, They fear for their children's futures. They worry about economics, even if the numbers tell them they shouldn't worry about economics. Where is the rough, tough, marble man when we need him? Yes. No, it's a very good question. Uh, I'm I'm quite worried myself because, of course, I'm not just simply a foreign observer of the U.S. You know, I'm someone who has lived there 40 years. My wife is American. My kids are dual citizens. So, you know, for me, this is a personal matter as well as an academic question. And I, I am, uh, you know, deeply worried about it because it does seem to be a, an absence, really, of of, of some figure that uh, could come in and do, in a sense, what Biden promised to do, but has not really managed to do, and then to be some sort of unifier, right, uh, in the country, reestablishing uh, trust across the, the aisle, so to speak, trying to create a better impression uh, of Washington, uh, of government, of the common institutions, instead what we have seen over these last few years is a deepening uh, of that gulf uh, between, you know, parts of America. Um, and this is nothing like the U.S. was when I arrived uh, in 1970, uh, even though even back then, right, there were, were be, you know, deep political conflicts, of course. But there was a sense that they, you know, we were all in the same boat uh, there was uh, some idea of being an American uh, that was a unifying idea. And it's hard right now to see that. Uh, one certainly hopes that this figure 
will show up and that it will be able to be a force to, to be reckoned with. But it's difficult at this moment to give a very optimistic and clear answer to your question. I saw some data recently from the Edelman people uh, who asked the following question. Does the social fabric that once held your country together grown too weak to serve as a foundation for unity and common purpose? 64% of the people responded that they polled extensively in the United States, responded, yep, the social fabric that I think I remember, put aside whether it really existed, isn't there anymore. Uh, that's scary stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the scary statistics I've seen also is that people don't seem to want to marry, right, across uh, political party lines, right? It used to be that one asked questions about could you marry someone outside of your own ethnic group? Now it seems to be that people are not willing to consider relationships across the political lines. And that tells you something about a social contract that is really breaking down, uh, not just at the level of politics, but, you know, in the realm of personal social life as well. And that's very serious. So you're a historian. Why is it breaking down? Why are we where we are? I think that's a very good question, Alan, because the, the thing is that people sometimes today, right, people have short memories and, and, and people are sort of thinking about what's happened in the last 10 years. But, you know, let's let's face it. The U.S. after the Second World War uh, was a pretty unified place. Uh, there was a strong sense of social cohesion. That's when we have the first uh, studies of social trust. Uh, and the U.S. at that time was a high-trust society uh, comparable to what we see in the Nordic countries still today. Um, so there was a sense that we are all in the same boat. Uh, you had these huge investments in big chunks of the population, the GI Bill, the building of this university system in, in states like California and many other states for that matter. A sense that we have a common duty to make social investments, to make sure that we ensure social mobility for the maximum amount of Americans. So that, you know, the beauty of the American dream uh, is alive and well and continues into the next generation or two. So this was an America that existed not terribly long ago. So we cannot just simply say that all oh, well, American constitution, you know, is, is anti-majoritarian. It, it, you know, it tends to promote divisions and in, in incapacity to rule and govern. That's too simple. You know, there is to be sure a long-term perspective that has to do with the political culture rooted, in fact, in the constitution. But there's also a shorter perspective, a story about a pretty well-functioning system, a social contract, a political system that worked pretty well. It, even though it, of course, allowed, like any democracy, for conflicts and, and divisions and, you know, different kinds of meanings on certain types of topics. But certainly nobody would have talked in the 1950s and 60s and well into the 70s and maybe even to the 80s about the possibility of the end of democracy in the United States, which today is a topic that people speak about quite seriously. So a couple of years ago, as you know, uh, Robert Putnam wrote his book, Bowling Alone, which essentially was about the breakdown of social institutions, which had been so important. And that's everything from garden clubs to the Boy Scouts to uh, non-governmental institutes. Th these are really almost clubs, if you will, which was a very important part of, of how Americans organized themselves. 
The other very important piece of, of social cohesion in the United States had always been the nuclear family, um, much more so than, than in many other countries. Not the extended family, a la Italy, but the nuclear family. Uh, today, 40% of births are outside of a two-parent family. That, that nuclear family doesn't exist in the way that it did in the time period you're talking about, pre-whenever, pre pre 2000 for sure. Um, so we've lost both social institutions and families as anchor tenants in, in our social cohesion. Two questions, I guess, is that three questions? Is that a fair description? Two, is it reversible? And three, if not, then what? Yeah. Well, let me try to approach this question from actually a Swedish point of view or Nordic point of view, right? The Nordic countries are high trust countries and they have, you know, a fairly well-functioning society. Uh, Sweden is under pressure. We can get back to that uh, because I think it's pertinent, you know, to thinking about the U.S. But the, the interesting thing right here is that when it comes to Putnam, right, that you brought up, Putnam, of course, you know, hugely influential, um, um, and important uh, thinker, uh, one of the probably most well-known public intellectuals for a long time. Uh, but the Swedes, you know, tend to quarrel with his analysis uh, because they see right, that Sweden uh, also have very high rates right, of divorce. Uh, we, we've had, you know, a long history, in fact, right, of, of not having uh, sort of built, you know, our social contract around the more traditional family or nuclear family, for that matter, uh, nor really around uh, institutions that are often brought up uh, in discussions about the health of America, let's say, uh, you know, the religious communities, right? And so there is a little bit of a sense that a Swede would probably react, right, to this and say, no, the problem is not the decline of the family, right? Uh, it, it's not really even the decline of religion uh, or other types of organizations in civil society. It is the failure, right, of the common institutions to service, right, uh, the population as a whole and, and, and work, right, to create that sense of a stability and of social contract. And I, I, I brought up already, right, the, that in the glory days of, of the post-war United States, there was much more of a presence of these kinds of well-functioning, uh, well-funded institutions that aimed, right, to provide some degree of equal opportunity to people. There was even a discussion, as you know, uh, during FDR, right, of having a uh, universal healthcare system, right? It was actually quite close at a certain point. Uh, and certainly when it came to education, uh, you know, there was a sense that this is something that's so important that, that all kids in America should have access to this. This is so critical. And, and those institutions, they serve to uh, create a sense of commonality right, among people as well, right? As de facto, in a material sense, providing opportunities uh, for, for everybody. And I think that what is really worrisome from the point of view of, of, of a Nordic is, is the failures here, right? The, the kind of demonization, if you will, uh, of the state and, and a kind of romantic, almost a romantic glorification of the family, uh, and, and which makes then the whole narrative about the decline of the family, the decline of religion, it seem plausible, 
right? Too many Americans in, in the public debate. But for a Scandinavian, I think one would say, well, look, we, we are the most secular country in the world. So certainly religion cannot be an explanatory factor here, right? Uh, and we sort of don't have like families that are particular. We are highly individualistic. The book that you mentioned that I wrote is really about individualism, social trust, right? The kind of paradox that Sweden is both the most individualistic country in the world and, you know, is characterized by social values. Now that goes back to these institutions, right? And, and a positive view of the state, right? That we are the highest tax, tax country in the world, but still there is no anti-tax political party, which to an American, right? Which seemed to be utter inexplicable. Um, but the problem in the U.S. now is that it's gone so far, if you will, right? You've had a Republican party that has been sort of working on what they call starving the beast, meaning, right, to try to deprive the state of the kind of resources necessary to make the type of investments uh, in, in the population that is necessary, both for wealth production, social mobility, and ultimately for social cohesion. So I think one of the missing pieces of the conversation there revolves right, around the common institutions in the U.S., and there's a little too much talk, I think, right, about family uh, as well as religion and other institutions in civil society. And I think that's where most Swedish uh, political scientists would quarrel with Putnam's analysis, right, because we are bringing our own experience into that analysis. And their uh, uh, family and civil society organization, even though they are very vibrant in Sweden as well, but they are not viewed as the only crucial element, right? They are there together. They're part of the institutional infrastructure, right? But so are the public institutions. Let me just challenge one bit of that, which objectively the facts are that we're spending dramatically more in the public sector uh, than we ever have. So whether or not there is rhetoric around about starving the beast, Right. The beast is fat, dumb, and happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, dumber yeah. and happier than it's ever been, in fact, in any comparison to the modern period. Uh, but, but to your point, though, there is a strong sense that the institutions aren't working. 50% of kids in New York City public schools are functionally illiterate uh, for their age level. That's a failure of a school system that is phenomenal. I mean, it's literally off, off the charts. Curiously, during the pandemic, and I want to switch, you've mentioned the pandemic, I want to switch a bit to the pandemic, in, in the sense that during the pandemic, for emergency reasons, the United States put in place a whole plethora of new social programs, dramatic expansion of childcare, of um, healthcare, obviously, uh, of support of students, et cetera, et cetera. It was perceived as an emergency response, and it's now being unwound, much to the chagrin of those who would prefer to see a more Swedish, if I may, kind of social safety net versus a more traditionally American social safety net, which is viewed not as necessary. It's viewed as necessary in an emergency, but not on a day-to-day basis. It's a fundamental difference between Sweden on the one hand, the United States on the other hand. I think that's a fair description. Uh, and I think th th that speaks exactly, I think, to, to, the, to the key issue here 
and I, th- I think that there's a perceptional problem here uh, that also goes actually to the way Americans think about the Nordic countries. Uh, you know, you use the word welfare and welfare state, which in, in, a, in the American English has rather negative connotations, right? Like welfare queens, right? You know, money for nothing, right? A, a, a kind of a, a sort of a support system, a, a safety net, right? Itself kind of uh, it captures that. Whereas in Sweden today, you are talking more about a social investment state, right? We know we, we, we remember Nordic countries are extraordinarily successful market societies, right? These are not like socialism, right? <laughs> I mean, these, we, we have had very few experiments actually in, in sort of kind of traditional socialism in terms of taking over companies. And these are very vibrant market societies. So the key here is that the state's role is perceived here are making investments, right? And you know, you you brought them up yourself here during the pandemic in the U.S. It was interesting to see that you'd put money, you know, into to you know childcare, uh, very important in form of investment uh, because it translates into you know human beings that are going to be much more able to function in a competitive market society. Uh, healthcare, right? I mean, healthcare is a huge cost to a lot of American companies. Uh, it, it's not a particularly great and rational system that you have right now there. Uh, so it's, but it's an investment, right? It's far, you should say that the Swedish state functions as a social insurance, right? On the one hand, and an investment bank on the other. So the idea is you invest, you know, in young people so that they can be providers, successful part of the economy. The social contract in Sweden is very straightforward. People work, pay taxes, earn rights. In some ways, right, the Nordic welfare state is more of a Republican wet dream than it is really some sort of democratic fantasy because it's based on a very harsh moral logic, right? Everybody has to work and contribute. Nothing is for free. There are no free lunches available, right? Um, and I think that that logic, you know, is sort of not really present enough, right, in a discussion in the U.S., right? You don't want a system that is based on sort of handouts. Uh, clearly, this is destructive to the moral order, destructive to the people who receive those handouts. So the important thing is if you're going to do something with state institutions, it has to be viewed uh, as investments. Right? And I think here, you know, it would be good if there was sort of a change in the conversational tone and the language, both when it comes to comparing Sweden to, to or the U.S. or the U.S. to the other Nordic countries, but also internally in the discussion about institutional uh, frameworks uh, and logics in the United States itself. Thanks for listening so far. I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcast. Now back to today's discussion, sponsored by the Stavros Niarchus Foundation, SNF. As you were talking, one of the thoughts that comes to mind that has troubled me for some time is that the U.S. may simply be too big and too diverse to cope with the challenges of our era. Uh, you, you suggested the decline of religion in the United States. In fact, 30% of Americans report they go to church every week. That's a third of the nation. Uh, that's, as, that's pretty high for an industrial country. I suspect it's an outlier for an industrial country. 
It used to be a little bit higher. It used to be 40% for years, but it's still a third of the nation. Uh, I suspect most of that third does not live on either the East Coast or the West Coast, uh, that there are, there's an internal company. It's like one of these jelly donuts. There's America in between and there's the coasts. Uh, and you see that kind of division reflected in all sorts of things, uh, including big picture politics and little picture politics. So the question, I'm, I'm trying to form a question here. We may just be, there, there's too many countries here. Maybe they're not governable. Maybe this national model, the combination of federalism and, 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 a, and, and a strong national government has reached the limits of its possibilities. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I can't really argue with your analysis. I mean, I think there, there's there's a lot of good reasons to worry along those lines. All I'm saying is that uh, if you look at you know the, the actual you, you know history in the U.S., right? There's also been quite a lot of uh, evidence to the contrary, right? I mean, to be sure, you can argue that the U.S. today is, is a sort of more diverse and more divided uh, than it was before. But it wasn't as if the United States in the 1950s, right, was a country devoid of diversity. Uh, you know, it, it, it has always had this kind of rich pluralism that's been you know, part of the strength of American society, clearly. But there, there was a different sort of a balance, right, between, you know, a, a sort of a capacity to, to, to solve problems collectively that worked for, for, for most of the, the population on the one hand, and then, you know, still allowing for a pluralism, right, when it came to, let's say, religion or ethnic communities and so forth. Um, the, the, the worry today is like that the divisions themselves are sort of fed uh, uh, they're feeding further, right, divisions. Lars, we're talking during what the United Nations has declared as Climate Week, which seems to be most in occasions for lots of people to fly to New York, talk about climate, worry that we're not doing enough. But that's my cynical reaction. But the changing climate clearly is one of the existential challenges uh, of our time. Can our societies, by which I mean the U.S. and separately Sweden and Europe, can our societies, as they're now structured, handle what it looks like the science demands of us? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? Um, I, I say that, you know, I think Sweden and U.S. find themselves in a slightly different positions here. Uh, some of that has to do with just sheer size, that, that you know, U.S. is tremendously important here. Um, and, and so is, of course, uh, China, uh, because just simply for the reason that the impact uh, is so much greater, right? So there is, for example, a, a discussion in Sweden um, represented by uh, the Sweden Democrats, you know, which is a, sort of the pol political party on the right here, that um, the big challenge is to get the Chinese to do their part here, right? Uh, and what Sweden does is really, is to some extent, much less relevant. At the same time, there is a pretty unified support, you know, across the board uh, that, you know, we need to do our part here. Uh, so there's relatively little, you know, kind of opposition, let's say, to trying to address these questions. There's, there's a lot of, you know, political will to do uh, the right thing, you know, whatever that may be. 
so there, there, I think there is a kind of an easier way here to do something politically with respect to reining in, right, emissions and so forth uh, than in the U.S. At the same time, there is also a sense that Sweden is not the, the key player here, right? The Nordic countries uh, can, can do a certain amount, uh, but at the end of the day, even if those countries were to do everything right, you know, uh, if the U.S., China, India, and so forth don't um, get their act together, we're all going to be, you know, frying in hell anyway. So there is a sort of a sense here of, of, of not having, you know, the reins uh, in your hands, right? We are, we, it's not, we are not the key players here. Um, so, so that I think is a big difference. Um, at the same time, there are some similarities, right? You know, you, you have the questions about short-term costs and long-term gains. Uh, you know, are you going to be able to stop, you know, driving cars tomorrow? No, you're not going to be able to do that. Um, are you, are you going to like sacrifice uh, everything associated with a good modern life? Uh, and everybody go bicycling and, and, uh, you know, sort of kind of having their own vegetable gardens. No, that's not going to happen either. So, so there is a sort of a sense that we have to think about these things long terms. Uh, but I think the political will is there in a different way, right, than in the U.S., where, where the divisions, again, the stuff that you and I already talked about, they are so severe uh, that it's almost at the level when you think back on the pandemic, right? And, I mean, that Sweden chose a different way, but there was no in debate about vaccinations, right? There were no anti-vaxxers around. You didn't have a deep political polarization around, you know, those policies, um, and it's the same thing, you know, with, with the environment, you know, yes, you do have some, some people at the outer edges, right, of the political spectrum, right, that may be climate deniers, but it's a very, very small group of people. So there's, it's not the same political challenge, I think, that, as you have in the U.S. But that's exactly the point. In the U.S., as you pointed out a couple of times, everything is partisan, everything is polarized. Uh, we have a climate emergency, but emergencies aren't the sorts of thing that you do anything about in that political, politically tense, politically confrontational kind of mode. So, I, again, not trying to put you on the spot, but I am trying to put you on the spot. Do you, as someone who, who knows America as well as you do, but from your own unique perspective, think the nation is capable of coping with this in any sort of reasonable way of what's being asked of the United States right. and the rest well, of the world. Alan, I, I think there's a, like one perspective here, perhaps, right, that may make a difference. That is to say that the impact of climate change, right, so far in Sweden has been extremely min minimal, right? You know, we can still have jokes about, you know, we're going to have vineyards soon. Isn't that a great thing? You know, our summers are going to be longer. Isn't that wonderful? In the U.S., the situation is different, right? I mean, you have had some pretty horrific events here from a climate perspective. Uh, the, the fires, right? The floods, uh, the issues about, you know, the availability uh, of clean water and so forth. These are real issues at a certain point, right? I think that in the U.S., that is going to uh, perhaps provoke the coming of together of people in a different way. Um, so that would be my one bit of hopefulness here, that the situation is already this year has been severe enough in the U.S. Uh, that people have to kind of start to take it serious. It's hard to be a, a climate change 
denier in the U.S., given just the sort of the magnitude of what is actually happening. So that would be, you know, the one little bit of edge, right? It's a tragic edge, right? But it's a certain advantage in the U.S., right, to actually facing, you know, climate change in a direct, concrete way that might prompt uh, political action even across the political lines. And unfortunately, the only problem is there are virtually no actions that have any impact in the short run. Those actions are all multi-generational consequences. Uh, And I at least would be stunned if the American political system is capable of making decisions that would have consequence in 40 years, but the costs are, are now. It's the exact opposite of how our politics in the United States tends to work. Let, let, me, let me just shift finally to, to perhaps a funny place, tolerance. Uh, you recently published an article and, and referenced Karl Popper's book from the, from the 30s uh, in which he presented the, the tolerance paradox, that tolerant societies may have to become intolerant at the margins to sustain their tolerance. Does that apply, do you think, to the United States in the 21st century, given everything we've talked about? Um, well, I mean, I think the U.S. Uh, uh, ultimately, uh, you know, is facing a similar conundrum, of course. Uh, the, the, I think that when you think about America, right, the United States, uh, there's always been this interesting kind of duality, right? On the one hand, uh, you, you also, like in Sweden, you know, have made tolerance as a key value, right, in, in American democracy, in fact. But at the same time, you've also had for immigrants this this uh, tradition of of swearing an oath of allegiance to the Constitution. Right? So there has been a very clear sense of a kind of civil religion, right? Uh, as as Rousseau famously called it. Uh, oh, where- in God we trust. In God we trust is on our currency. It's on our courthouses. It's uh, yeah. It's well, but that is interesting because that you know is in some ways also. Uh, some argue, some historians argue that actually the, the, the preoccupation <laughs> with God, you know, has actually come a little bit later, whereas the actual, you know, commitment to the Constitution, right, has been there, you know, as a very central part for a really long, longer period of time. And that actually what we see now as a threat to that is what some people refer to as Christian nationalism in the United States, right, where the argument is forget about the separation of state and church. America is a Christian nation, you know, and this goes, you know, this is actually of a higher standing than, you know, just a mere secular constitution. So U.S. is facing a challenge there as well uh, that is, it takes the form of, of intolerance. And the question is, can the U.S. handle that, right, by creating a sort of limit to tolerance? How far are we going to go placating, right, the claims and demands from the religious right. Uh, and that, that is analogous to the you know, demands that you see in Sweden and some other Western European countries, right? Where, uh, sizable Muslim minorities, right? Uh, are subject, right? To sort of pull a polit- political program that, you know, is trying to argue that, you know, the religious beliefs associated with the Quran or with Islam, right? Are higher, of a higher standing, so to speak, right, than the loss, the secular loss of these these countries. Uh, 
And, and that's where I was coming down when I was wrote, writing this piece, right? That what we see now in Sweden, which has now somewhere around 25% foreign born, many, many of them coming, you know, from Muslim countries. Uh, these issues are real now in a way that they weren't before. So, you, so tolerance is not just merely an abstract concept, right? It's something that is actually challenged in the concrete when it comes to, you know, this, the loss of the lamb, so to speak. Uh, so, and I, but I think that U.S. And, and Sweden both have these kinds of issues that there are deep issues because, okay, every, it's easy to say we should respect all religions. But it's quite a different matter to say that that means, therefore, that we are going to have special rules applying for people who are religious when it comes to the loss of the land. Uh, and issues like abortion, for example, right, you know, has already become an issue. Uh, we see how, you know, uh, religion has become a different type of issue on the Supreme Court in the United States recently, right? So, you know, the, the kind of demands and the challenges coming from the religious right uh, is something that actually also does challenge, right, the primacy uh, of the U.S. as a constitutional order of a secular kind. Let's leave it there because I, I'd love to open that door, that is the potential constitutional crisis or maybe crises that could be in America's future. We'll save that for next time. Uh, because I think it would be worthwhile exploring how the United States might cope with these issues and potentially cope with how, whether it needs a new constitution to cope with the new world we live in. So Lars Tregor, I want to thank you very much for this conversation uh, and, and look forward to our next chat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org.